nothing else, it's a fun way to make more content from that kind of whole storyline. Exactly. Without having to wait on... Uh, <sighs> wait for fresh oranges to fall from the tree. We can just squeeze the juice out of the ones we've got. That's you know? right. Speaking of which... Welcome to Super Duper Sitches. The Paranormal Podcast. About the science of the strange, I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And we're back again. <laughs> See, the curse <laughs> cannot be shaken off. No. The compulsion. We, it's, it's another week. Actually, this is effectively the third episode we're doing this same week. Uh, we released the Halloween episode on Sunday. We we're released, recording a ton of tent. We, we've, yeah, we're, we're trying to make up for lost time by making this here podcast about... Spooky things and mysterious, strange, just unusual things that we examine from a scientific angle, and uh, we're we're doing it. We're doing it again. We this week we're going to talk about something that rests right on the knife's edge between strange and science, which of course is smart animals. <laughs> we're looking um, at a couple of the most famous animals known for communicating with humans. Yes, these are. Very uh, well-known cases. I think you just said that. Continue. Yep. <laughs> uh, very charismatic cases and just very... Uh, it's yes. a fun thing to dig into more. It's something that you probably have seen in passing, at least one of these two, and just kind of like, oh, neat, and moved on. And it's cool to look into it in a little more depth to get a, just a better feeling of, hey, what the... What's the deal? So we'll tell their stories and then do a little breakdown. And I forget who goes first. It's even episode, meaning you go first. It, yeah, it will be that case, which is uh, it's because of how we kind of screwed things up by having the last two episodes exist quantum locked with each other so that there's no real knowing <laughs> which one was going to come out first. So I'll go first. I'm going to talk today about a very special bird. Oh, boy. Uh, my main source is northernparrots.com with some elements from mymodernmet.com. Uh, Scientific American, and a little bit of YouTube stuff as well. So to begin with, uh, while writing her PhD on chemical physics at Harvard, Irene Pepperberg started watching a NOVA episode, or a NOVA series, like a, little, a series of episodes on animal intelligence. Programs covered apes and cetaceans, all mammals, so like some whales and dolphins, stuff like that, uh, as well as your typical great apes, gorillas, chimpanzees, the things you usually think of when you hear about animal intelligence moving you so all the grapes all the <laughs> uh, one particular episode on why do birds sing showing how they learn their songs really got her attention uh, irene having had a talking parakeet as a child wondered why no one had put the two ideas together and tried to use a talking bird in an animal human communication study Mm. Which makes sense. We look at like say, oh, chimpanzees, uh, gorillas. Those things are super intelligent. So we should communicate with them, but they don't have the means of vocalizing human speech. Well, well birds, they're not known for being as intelligent, but they can totally talk, like very, very clearly. They can articulate. So her PhD, once it was all finished, she switched her interests from chemistry to parrots. Huh. Uh, in an interview, Classic. she she explained her choice. Quote, my proposal was simple. I said I wanted to replicate the linguistic and cognitive skills that had been previously achieved with chimps in a gray parrot, an animal with a brain the size of a shelled walnut, but one that could talk. My confidence that I could do it was based on two things. First was my experience growing up with talking birds and the sense that they are indeed smart. Second were the facts that grays, like apes, live a long time and that their social groups are large and complex. Both these factors were thought to account for at least some of the brain power that apes so obviously possess. Why not a similar kind of brain power for greys? So the sociality of the species uh, that she mentioned contributed to her experimental design in a cool way, which we'll get to. 
Um, but the thought too is if you could have an animal that lived a long time, you'd have a lot of time to run an experiment with one individual and mm-hmm. can then get a mm-hmm. chance to really, really see, oh, can this guy learn? Mm-hmm. Wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for her project. Few scientists mm. believed she would demonstrate cognition and communication with an ordinary off-the-shelf like pet store parrot. Get him out of a gumball machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she purchased Alex, which uh, he was an acronym for Avian Learning Experiment. Oh, from God. a pet store in Chicago in June 1977. He was about 12 to 13 months old. How about Parrot Unusual Language or Paul? <laughs> I do like the idea of the slight shift from Polly to just Paul. <laughs> Somehow a much funnier oh, wait, parrot no. name. Polly could be Parrot Unusual Language Experiment. <laughs> Paul hyphen E. <laughs> um, it's the sequel to the uh, Pixar movie Carry On. Yes. Uh, she had a store employee pick him out for her so that there could be no no bias on her part for like ac- even accidentally oh, th- which picking one that might seem smarter. She did want to like, hey, just, just grab one. I won't even look. So that way it would be just <laughs> no chance of her f- a- even accidentally Getting picking the one that seemed Getting the bird that's actively little- doing math equations in its cage when she <laughs> yeah. gets there. Like not accidentally picking the bird that has glasses, like anything that yeah, might. Yeah, exactly. It's got the pike protector <laughs> yeah. with the pens. Okay. So she wanted to show that any bird could be capable of the tasks she had planned. Right. Pepperberg claimed that within three years, she would teach Alex labels for objects and that he would be able to discriminate colors and shapes and materials in the tests. She succeeded. Wow. I don't actually know this story. This is crazy. Oh, it's super fun. I really love this. I learned about it. There's like a little like documentary about him and um, when I took animal behavior in my senior year of college. Sweet. And, uh, and that was, it was the last semester of college. And I had some inkling that I kind of liked learning about animal behavior. But then the very last semester, I was like, fucking, this is what I wanted to do for grad school. <laughs> nice. She used a form of training known as the model rival method, which relies on competition between two rivals for a reward by successfully completing a task. It's like RuPaul, too, right? Exactly like that, in fact. I think that was based on the Alex trials. This is based on the way that birds often learn from observing the behavior of others. Like, back to the bird song thing she was talking about, like, looking at how some birds would, like, kind of watch older birds or, like, their parents or whatever to learn how stuff worked. And so, in this case, gamifying training would add a positive incentive while simultaneously giving Alex someone to learn from. Mm. So, there would be a lab assistant who would just... Like she'd ask a question of like an object or something, and then the lab assistant would answer it and um and get a reward for it like before Alex could, and, and so he had to like he'd see oh this is what I'm supposed to mm-hmm. do okay, so they acted as the rival. They got things like grapes in return for correctly answering simple questions, and they did it in a way too like they would like, in some of the videos it's pretty cute like they the way they answer the questions it's kind of like doing an impression of how the parrot would sound so it's just very oh, clear like, here's how like so it's not going so far above and beyond what his abilities would be. Um, the questions are all phrased in a very simple way. I can get into that a little bit more, too. Mm. Alex's cognitive abilities blossomed under this social reward system. That's so cool. Furthermore, Pepperberg was very strict in her effort to avoid replicating the Clever Hans scenario. Uh, I mentioned this as well. Oh, excellent. So, um, yeah, Clever Hans, then you already know, but I'll just bring it up. Late 19th century in Germany, Clever Hans was a uh, brown gelding. What turns out is a horse. I was like, the gal, that, that's not a horse. Um, <laughs> the galfling. Did you just make a galfling joke? No, I didn't. Okay. Well, there so is. So you have that, you have that available to you for later. It happened. Like, okay. He would tap out the answers to math equations with his hoof, like just simple sums. And it was discovered later on that Hans was not actually doing the math, but responding to the trainer's unconscious body language. Hans could not, for example, 
do sums if the questioner was out of sight. Yeah, he would tap until the uh, the guy was like relaxed because he'd reached the correct number, mm. um, and they would just stop tapping. Although Hans, I believe, died when they asked him what was two thousand plus two thousand. <laughs> So, uh, to avoid the same problem, Pepperberg never allowed the assistants who trained Alex to test him. So, as far as the idea of, like, not, mm. you know, they have an expectation for what he's supposed to do and mm-hmm. might accidentally communicate that. She also tested Alex using many different objects at the same time, so he couldn't anticipate the correct answer based on a small subset of possibilities. So, she'd have a lot of different things, and the question might be about the color or the shape or the material it's made of. And she'd introduce different stuff at different times. So he would never be able to just predict what he's supposed to say. So rather than rote memorization of what vocal sound resulted in the reward, he would have to actually figure out what was going on in the scenario and respond accordingly. She even tested him using novel objects he'd never seen before. And he actually have a, one of the videos I'll show will be an instance of him doing that and, and doing pretty well. Exciting. In later years, Alex could sometimes act as one of Pepperberg's assistants by acting as the model or rival and helping to teach a like new parrot in the lab. So Whoa. he got good enough at it that he could be the one to kind of show them how to do it and he could compete against them and they would learn from him. It's crazy. Alex also sometimes practiced words when he was alone, suggesting that actual learning was going on rather than just performance for a reward. Like he would try the word out to get more comfortable with it when no one was around to give him anything. <laughs> Instead of a mic, he's like, I'm murdering you. Murder. <laughs> What's it from the Jinx? Killed them all, of course. From you the Jinx? See, you ever see the Jinx? It was about uh, Robert Durst. I was on HBO. It was a murder. Okay, never mind. Oh, damn, no. Um, in 1999, Pepperberg published an academic book summing up 20 years of working with Alex. He, he could identify 50 different objects and recognize quantities up to eight. He could distinguish seven colors and five shapes and understand the concepts of bigger, smaller, same, and different, as well as absence. Wow. Uh, the website about parrots offers a brief aside about how Alex's behavior contrasts with that of your usual pet parrot. The parrot owners report that their birds often use language meaningfully, but this is pretty much always just circumstantial or, or coincidental. Um, one example is a vet in Florida who had euthanized a parrot in the hospital room of his like surgery, and the next day when he entered that same room... An Amazon pair in a cage said, not me next. (laughs) (laughs) Another example is a woman cleaning the cage of Ronnie, her African gray, when uh, she knocked against the bird. Oh, be careful, said Ronnie, who had uh, her but never been explicitly taught that word. Wow. He probably had seen like the, the context in which that phrase might be used and then just kind of repeated it then. Perhaps that was how it came up. But uh Last example is um, Paula Feldman, who's an English professor, came home one evening and asked her parrot, who had been caged all day, how are you, Rachel? The gray replied, incarcerated, a <laughs> word <laughs> that she'd heard wow. Paula use and now just happened to apply in the correct context. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> so compared to all of that, uh, here are some fun Alex anecdotes and how they differ from just randomly repeating back things he heard. Cool. Uh, and for a sense of how training typically worked, I mentioned like the kind of uh, the rival competition kind of thing. So if Alex was shown a plastic key that was yellow, he could distinguish it from one that was made of metal by its color and its material while still labeling them both as keys. Uh, so when presented with an object, he would be asked questions like what color, what matter, mm. or what mm-hmm. shape. 
Wow. And he had a very high rate of accuracy with the responses. I think it was like in the 80%-ish kind of range, his accuracy. I wonder how close that is to people, too. Like, we don't always know. Yeah, I think they actually even did some comparisons like him against like a young child and kind of compare. And I think it was like not dissimilar from, you know, three-year-old or something. Wow. Specific wording of the questions was intended to simplify things into as few words as possible. Sure. So like just making it as a question, like what color, what matter, what shape. Those are three things you have to know. And matter is sounding kind of goofy at first. Like, okay, instead of saying, what is this made of? It's like, okay, it's just what thing is this? Yeah. <laughs> um, so ultimately, while Alex showed really cool signs of being able to talk to researchers, this was limited to using syntax to establish two-way communication. He didn't know grammar or anything like that. Mm, mm. Um, so let me play you a fun example uh, to start with. Alex, what matter? Whoa. That's right, you're a good Alex boy. can answer different questions about the same object. How many corners? What <laughs> Imagine if that's... <laughs> can you pause? The narrator had kind of a bird-like voice, and I was imagining <laughs> if that was Alex was describing Alex his narrated. own state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> Alex can answer different questions. Anyway, he just turns on. and looks at the camera to say stuff and goes back to... <laughs> Anyhow. All right. So she asked him how... Um, so the way she would ask what shapes were, she would basically just say how many sides did the shape have. So like a triangle, he would call a three. Uh, in this case, ah. it's a square. So she's looking for a four. Right. How many corners? So he's going to... What shape? Four. Corner. Four corner. Good boy. Alex hasn't just learned to say a certain word when he sees a particular object. He's how paying many? attention to the questions. How many? That's right. You're a good boy. No, sweetie. No, you can't go back yet. But he keeps saying, want to go back. <laughs> That's what he was <laughs> saying when he was like tired of doing testing and wanted to just go back to his cage to chill. And so he just keeps interrupting. I'll get That's into more later, cute. too, about how he um, could be kind of a petulant child in a very adorable way. Aw. You got to want some water? All right. Do you want some water? Or are you just asking to interrupt? Are you just asking to interrupt? Uh, a crack in the armor. <laughs> what color bigger? What color bigger? Green. Oh, you're a good boy. Those are a pair of keys of different sizes of different colors. Okay, Alex, look. Look what I got for you. Hey, look. Look at all these neat toys. Look. So he has a, a whole hey, look, palette of me? different uh, like blocks and like little car things. And they're different. There's uh, blue and green stuff. And uh, every time he gets a new object, she lets him like feel it with his beak and look it over and stuff. Can you tell me on the tray how many green block? How many green block? Look on this the tray. This is a how miniature logic problem. Block? Alex can't just count up all the green things, and he can't just count up all the blocks. Alex has never been trained with this particular collection of things. How many green blocks? Good parrot, two green block, two good parrot. So that's wow. an example of uh, of the kind of stuff Alex would and could do. Super cool. And also just how cute it is to hear him talk. Yeah, absolutely adorable. Especially love him interrupting, just like, wanting to distract from the test. Like, can I get some water? Yeah. Just very, <laughs> just very articulate. Like, I, can, I can get some water over here. Okay. <laughs> and not actually wanting the water, but just wanting to stop the proceedings. Just stop this. Yeah, yeah. I'm over it. <laughs> Please. Uh, so here's some more fun stories about stuff he did. Uh, one time he asked for an apple, but he didn't know the word for apple. So instead he called it a binary, 
which I really believe was him combining banana and cherry, which are two fruits he recognized and did know the words for. Wow. I was like, I don't know. It's one of these fucking things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like both, I guess. Yeah. Something. This habit of his for recombining words he had learned to describe new experiences was one of the more remarkable outcomes of his training and one of the best pieces of evidence for his like genuine understanding of what he was saying. Uh, my favorite example of this was when he was given a birthday cake one year. He'd never experienced a cake before, so when he took a bite, he declared, yummy bread. <laughs> That's really cute. Yeah, oh and gosh. like, and very, like, if those are words you have and you don't know what else to say, that totally describes a cake. Hell yeah. One of the most famous stories about Alex is when he became the first animal of any species to ask an existential question. <laughs> so in December 1980, when Kathy Davidson, one of the laboratory students, took him into the bathroom, Alex noticed the mirror for the first time. He cocked his head back and forth a few times to get a fuller look and said, What's that? That's you, Kathy answered. You're a parrot. Alex looked again and then said, What color? Gray. You're a gray parrot, Alex. And that's how Alex learned the color gray. Wow. So, yeah, he uh, asked basically, What am I? <laughs> That's crazy. And like, yes, oh and afterward, gosh. he was able to identify other things that were gray, the same color that he is. And uh, so, yeah, he asked a question about himself. And That's um, so cool. Yeah. Uh, during one training session, Alex repeatedly asked for a nut, a request that Pepperberg refused until he finished his work for the day. He just wanted the treat. He's like, no, we got to keep doing testing. Kept asking for a nut. She still kept not giving it to him. So finally, he looked at her and said slowly, want a nut? Nut. <laughs> that's awesome so she said, I, was, I was stunned Pepperberg writes it was as if he were saying hey stupid do I have to spell it out for you yeah <laughs> uh, one last example he was perching near a veterinary assistant Alex repeatedly inquired whether she wanted a nut wanted corn wanted water and she kept just saying no he got frustrated by all the no's so he asked well what do you want that's so cute. So not quite like basic mimicry. Yeah, no, it seems like he's making his own leaps. Yeah. If asked the difference between two objects, he would say what it was. So like with those two keys, for example, she was saying which one is bigger. So he could say all oh, the difference is size. He could say color. If there was no difference between the objects, he could say none. Uh, once Alex was given several different colored blocks, two red, three blue, and four green, Pepperberg asked him, what color three? Expecting him to say blue. There are three blue blocks. Mm. However, Alex had been asked this question before, so he seemed to have been, become bored or grumpy. So he answered five. And this kept occurring until Pepperberg said, fine, what color five? Alex replied, none. So Whoa. <laughs> uh, kind of suggested that parrots, like children, get bored and ornery. Um, <laughs> but it also was particularly interesting because he had transferred his use of the label none you know, from responding to the absence of similarity or difference to the absence of physical objects from a space. In other words, right. it seemed like he had developed a concept of zero, which is pretty cool as well. That's crazy, yeah. He also seemed to manipulate Irene into asking the questions he felt like answering. We saw him manipulate her with just saying he wanted water when he actually didn't. Sometimes he would answer the questions incorrectly despite knowing the correct answer. Huh. And the way they knew that is so he would give all the wrong possible answers and then repeat them all, but avoid giving the correct response. Uh, so he's, yeah, giving giving away the fact that he knows it by yeah. avoiding it. And giving away the fact that he doesn't want to give them what yeah, they yeah, want yeah, to, exactly, which is great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's um, too cool. Yeah. 
Skeptics of Pepperberg's findings consider Alex's communication as just operant conditioning rather than true learning of right. language. So operant conditioning is basically training training an animal to just have – I mean, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog situation, right, as far as like Correct. just to, to associate an action with a reward or punishment. But like you know, if I do this thing, this other thing will happen. And right. um, so instead of learning language, they said you're just kind of memorizing, oh, if I do this certain thing, I'll get what I want or something. Yeah. That comes in with my segment too, basically. Yeah. I mean, I don't explicitly say, say those words, but exactly. Like a parrot is just smart enough in a sense to learn a huge array of essentially if I say X when they ask Y, I'll get a treat. Right. Funny thing there is I would say how different is that from how language actually works? Hey, who knows? But um, I'll get into it in a second what what uh, how Pepperberg actually defined his language because she never actually said that he. Well, I'll get there. Some debate over whether he was just simply imitating the teacher. Doctor Herbert Terrace, who worked with chimpanzees, says he thinks Alex performed by rote rather than using language. Hmm. He called Alex's responses a complex, discriminating performance. I think that every that in every situation, quote, there is an external stimulus that guides his response. In response to that, however, Alex was able to talk and perform for anyone involved in the project as well as complete strangers who would <laughs> not necessarily have the same cues for him. Right. But because Alex's achievements have not been fully replicated, most of these results are kind of just an N of one and thus not mm. totally conclusive. More just like, hey, here's a neat kind of pilot study with this one, like long-term pilot study with this one parrot. Since then, right. Pepper Wor- Pepperberg's work with subsequent parrots covers a number of different topics from the kind of stuff she studied with Alex. She just tried out different directions to go with different parrots to see what kind of stuff they could do rather than just doing the exact same thing again. Um, Similar methods, but for different kind of uh, goals. She writes, quote, The subject of language has always been a contentious topic, uh, topic, scientifically, but also emotionally. For both some scientists and laypersons, spoken language has long been held sacrosanct or as uniquely human. Hepperberg has never claimed that Alex used language in a human fashion. She described it as simply a two-way communication code developed between the bird and researchers, and later on then between him and other uh, greys who joined the lab. Hmm. So in that sense, it's like, okay, she never said okay, he, was just, he was speaking English, like he was fluent in English. Like, no, he, was, he had just figured out a code system to communicate back and forth with others in a way that would, would transfer information, which is the basics of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not that was through memorizing, it's hard to say, but it's like, after a certain point, if you have that broad a vocabulary, as it were, for things you can say that get certain responses and you know when to apply those, is that really different from knowing language? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It, that feels like where a lot of these stories come back to as well. Is mm-hmm. Essentially, your, whether or not you believe these animals are using language comes down to what your definition of language is. Yes. And hotly contended, or uh, hotly debated, sorry. Mm-hmm. So, but the Alex, this is a really cool story. Really, really compelling. Yeah, this is very cute and fun. And uh, yeah. um, so typically African gray parrots live to be about 45 in captivity. Alex... Uh, died on September 6, 2007, at the age of 31. So younger than oh. they expected, which was pretty sad and surprising to everybody. The Alex Foundation posted the pathology results on October 4th. Quote, Alex died quickly. He had a sudden unexpected event associated with us, um, arteriosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. It was either a fatal ary- arrhythmia, a heart attack, or stroke. 
which caused him to die suddenly with no suffering. There was no way to predict his demise. Hmm. Alex's last words to Pepperberg were almost unfairly heart-wrenching. Um, he said, quote, you be good. See you tomorrow. I love you. Uh, I think I remember this yeah. part. These were the same words that he would say to her every night when Pepperberg left the lab. But uh, yeah, well, he may very likely have understood very few of those particular words other than just the context in which to use them like that's the kind of stuff you could say it's when like you know saying night, goodbye night. kind of stuff but like yeah but even though, like that's the last stuff he said was basically just saying goodbye so yeah. regardless of of how much he knew what he was saying is still ah yeah and that's that's the uh in general that is the story of alex the parrot there's lots of videos you can find online of him I, i'll try and link to i'll some more i'll find some more cool ones and link to maybe a longer one showing more of basically this exact same story but with seeing it in action kind of stuff because it's just a fun thing to uh experience yeah very very cool oh my gosh well thank you so much jake yeah oh man uh before we launch or before i launch into uh my own segment i i dare say we talk about little brewery in western massachusetts which officially has a brick and mortar that's right talking about four phantoms Mm -hmm. which can be found at 301 Wells Street in Greenville, Massachusetts, uh, where you can imbibe delicious brews inspired by heavy metal, Dungeons and Dragons, and of course, awesome beer. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, truly a treat. They still have Four Phantoms uh, exclusive memberships up for sale. Mm -hmm. So if you want to spring for one of those, you get uh, special gear discounts and other fun opportunities as they release new beers or have Mm. private events and things like that so a cool option if you're local and if you're more abroad do try finding their beer at distributors in around massachusetts or in rhode island and otherwise uh just plan a trip to the states yes if you're you're truly abroad get your butt over here yeah and get some beer and uh, I have said before, and I, I will say again, I think that when things are a little bit less pandemic-y, it'd be very cool to arrange some kind of like super duperstitious meetup at Four Phantoms. Oh, yeah. Um, that's going to be who knows how far out, but that is a thing that I think should happen, and uh, that would be fun. That'd be truly sweet. Other ways you can support them without drinking the beer, you can go to their website, buy some some merch. Very fun. way you could support them that eh, we're not going to talk about anymore is Untapped. Turns out, sucks. Yeah, so... Un, untapped. <laughs> yes. Thank you for those of you who have left reviews in the last yeah, they're very year fun. or so of us begging you to, but uh, they're very fun stuff. But uh, You've done nothing wrong. The no. site just sucks, so fuck them. Exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We've been given explicit permission to say, fuck untapped. Yeah. Um. So yeah, thank you for Phantoms. Thank we you. We love you guys. Yeah. Now, back to the show. I think a lot of folks have at least heard of Coco the Gorilla. Mm-hmm. But maybe only a handful actually know her story. So, Koko was born Hanabiko, which means fireworks child in Japanese. Never knew, never knew that, but went by Koko as her nickname. Mm-hmm. Born on Independence Day in 1971 at the San Francisco Zoo. Around her first year, Koko came under the care of Dr. Francine Patterson, then a doctoral student who taught Koko a modified form of American Sign Language, which she called Gorilla Sign Language. And this is kind of the crux of Coco's fame. She was known as the uh, the gorilla that knew signs for uh, flipping people off, and also just doing like heavy metal horns. Right? That was the that was the modified 
sign language. Yeah, those yeah. two things. That, those were the two signs, and from there they just uh, riffed out. <laughs> yep, just extrapolated her meaning. Everything was just either a middle finger or heavy metal horns. <laughs> and then she quickly learned about 998 additional signs. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, as as Coco mastered the language, she eventually boasted an active vocabulary of more than 1,000 signs, and it was reported that she understood approximately 2,000 words of spoken English in addition to this set. Um, And naturally, she gained a great deal of popular attention for all of this. Um, She she would go on to be on the cover of National Geographic in a picture that she herself took of herself. (laughs) It's a pretty cute pic, and once you realize that, oh, she's actually taking that in a mirror, it's... Just the kind of uh, great ape animal in the mirror mind blow that everyone enjoys. Yeah. Uh, she would meet a small cast of human celebrities, including uh, famously Robin Williams, which I'll talk about a little later because that's key to all this. Fred Rogers of mm. um, Mr. Rogers fame. Betty White, uh, eternal celebrity. And uh, William Shatner. Uh, immortal as well celebrity. As, say what? Immortal celebrity. The yes. undying Betty White. <laughs> the undying. Um, and Flea. Oh, fun. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Patterson and her colleague Eugene Linden wrote The Education of Coco, um, which is not some kind of animalistic porno. <laughs> In uh, 1981, as a record of the first decade of teaching and interacting with Coco, I'm giving a pretty brief overview today of the Coco Tale, uh, but if you're intrigued to learn more or read more, The Education of Coco is available online via PDF link, which we'll have on the episode page. Also, I want to mention I'm drawing a lot of this from uh, the Washington Post, The Wire magazine, as well as the New York Times, and I'll have a YouTube clip too. Cool. I have just a slew of things that Coco was known for, which were pretty cute. One of which was her pets. She was known to keep pets. She asked for a cat for Christmas in 1983, and when given a lifelike stuffed animal instead, did not play with it, and instead continuously signed sad. No. <laughs> she was later allowed to choose from a litter of kittens and named one of them All Ball, uh, which she cared for gently and lovingly. Sadly, All Ball escaped and was killed by a vehicle. Oh something like months after and Coco would just repeatedly sign sad, bad, sad and frown, cry, frown, sad, trouble. Oh no. Uh, While making a sound that Patterson reported as similar to human weeping. God, that's so sad. (laughs) It's tragic. Um, I prefer the part where she was signing sad because like they just blew Christmas for her. Like, no, I want <laughs> yeah, a real like, cat. What the fuck? I don't want a stuffed <laughs> pat or cat. Pat. <laughs> it's a pet cat. Yes. Um, we also want to accept a cat. A cat, yes. Uh, she would, thankfully, have several more kittens throughout her life. I don't know what happened. Maybe they only lasted as kittens and then they were, took, they were taken away for some reason. But um, she would name the rest of her kittens Lips, Smokey, <laughs> Miss Black, and Miss Gray. Hmm. Which are adorable. Yeah. Um, Coco was also known for her uh, amazing intelligence. Early in her life, uh, Coco was put through several IQ tests, um, of course, naturally, including the Cattell Infant Intelligence Scale and Form B of the Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test. Both of these tests are designed to assess early neurological development performance in humans. 
and can help uh, determine whether a child may need special assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Coco consistently achieves scores in the ninety, or excuse me, in the seventy to ninety range, uh, which are comparable to a human infant that is slow but not intellectually impaired, which hmm. is pretty amazing. Um, and as Patterson writes, quote, in Coco's case, it is specious to compare her IQ directly with that of a human infant. Mm-hmm. For one thing, the two mature differently. Many of the early tests require mostly motor responses. Gorillas develop locomotor abilities earlier than human infants do, but of course do not develop bipedal walking skills or fine motor control as quickly or as well as we do. Also, IQ is horseshit anyway. Yeah. Moreover, there is not an exact match between the level of maturity of a a three-and-a-half-year-old gorilla and a a three-and-a-half-year-old human infant. Therefore, since chronological age is the divisor in the equation that is used to compute IQ, the IQ obtained is not very useful for comparative purposes. So, there you go, rather defensive response, even though I would have been actually pretty happy with uh, that score. (laughs) Sure. I mean, given that you're asking a a different species to complete tasks for a human like yeah it's still pretty damn cool pretty damn cool i agree coco was also uh renowned for her of course language and her humor reading patterson's words were shown a being that loved a good joke and used forms of wordplay to help herself through conversational snares so mm-hmm. as just one example so kind of like us um <laughs> one example of her good humor uh, quote, one day while giving Coco a few M&Ms, one of her handlers said, and one for the alligator, as he placed an M&M in an inflated alligator's mouth, and Coco chuckled heartily at this. Aw. It's adorable. That is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> she, like, got the joke ostensibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, with regard to her sign language maneuvering, quote, many of Coco's language games involve homonyms and rhymes that are typical of the exploratory games that children use as they mm-hmm. learn about spoken language. One of the first indications that Coco could use words on the basis of acoustic similarity occurred when she would substitute a sign for an English homonym of a word she did not know. Hmm. For instance, when Coco had difficulty articulating need, as in N-E-E-D, mm-hmm. she would occasionally use knee, K-N-E-E, a sign that sounds like need, but is made in sign language in an entirely different manner. I was thinking you were going to say she would sign need, K-N-E-A-D, and then I was wondering, why the fuck did they teach her that? Were they making bread? <laughs> she made a lot of very hairy bread. <laughs> she also has, on occasion, inter- uh, interchanged signs for I, as in myself, and mm-hmm. I, the eyeball. Huh. No, as in to know something, and no, as in the negative. Mm-hmm. And 11 and lemon, as mm-hmm. well as others. That's really cool. Very cool. Unquote. Here, Patterson leans on the interpretation of Maureen Sheehan, another of Coco's teachers, who also worked with the f- uh, first autistic human child to be taught sign language. Hmm. Maureen notes that, quote, both Coco and Tommy substitute a similar sounding but inappropriate word when the right word does not come to mind. For instance, both will use the body part back in phrases such as come back. Hmm. On the other hand, when both Tommy and Coco know a word well, they make no such mistakes. Both understand that like means similar to and love, and they recognize the appropriate sense of the word from the context of the sentence, unquote. So, Hmm. if that was a bit confusing to hear, essentially, 
there's some overlap in technique, let's say, where uh, Coco and Tommy would reach for words that sounded like what they wanted to use but just weren't appropriate, but still could accomplish, you know, a lexical feat. Yeah. Pretty cool. Basically, they're working away around the fact that English is frequently a pretty stupid language. Yeah. It's <laughs> and like they're making it work for Silly them. putty. Yeah. And I feel like here, this is a reasonable interpretation, but does stand in some contrast to Patterson's earlier defensiveness around any comparisons of Coco to human infants. Mm-hmm. So, a little bit taking what she will. Yeah. Coco was also uh, known for an extreme nipple fixation. Hmm. <laughs> um, also, just like us, am I right? <laughs> yeah, she had a preoccupation with both male and female human nipples and evidently requested to see several visitors' nipples. <laughs> nipples. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, she was so into it that in 2005, at least two female staff members at the Gorilla Foundation where she lived filed lawsuits against the organization, alleging that they were pressured to reveal their nipples to Coco by the organization's executive director. God. And before you place bra- blame on the ED, because <laughs> at first I was like, well, fuck that person. <laughs> <laughs> Show that gorilla your nipples. <laughs> um, Coco also gave Robin Williams this treatment when he visited her. Uh, even going so far as to grab his nips when he was nice enough to lift his shirt. Wow. So she truly was uh, stuck on them nips. Um, And this is a questionably funny moment in what is one of the more widely covered chapters of Coco's life, which were, which was her meeting Robin Williams and then later learning of his death. Hmm. So in 2001, Coco met Robin Williams for the first time when he visited her at the Gorilla Foundation in California. Incidentally, Williams was one of the only people ever to have his arms hairy enough to qualify as an honorary gorilla. (laughs) Uh, The two hit it off and spent time laughing, tickling one another, and hugging. And I will just play a little bit of a clip from their encounter. Hi, this is Robin Williams. I recently had a mind-altering experience communicating with a gorilla. Her name is Coco. We shared something extraordinary. Laughter. Coco understands spoken English and uses over a thousand signs to share her feelings and thoughts about daily events. Life, love, even death. It was awesome and unforgettable. I'm going to adopt you. (laughs) Ah, she's taking his glasses. Aww. You get the gist. Yeah. That's very sweet. Um so you know, they they play around a bit and uh this was widely covered and a very uh impactful day for both of them actually. Williams would forever remember this and it seems like Coco would too. Uh years later Coco learned of Williams' death and this brought her back into a place of widespread media attention. Hmm. It was a readily sympathetic piece. The two had clearly had a bit of a connection and fun when they met over a decade earlier. And so it was a little surprise, even almost expected, that Coco, quote, became very somber with her head bowed and her lip quivering when she heard the news. Chuck Klosterman, writing for the New York Times in 2014, offered a hot take amid the outpouring (laughs) What was the point of telling Coco about Robin Williams' death? (laughs) Yeah. 
As he states, quote, the press reports dwelt on the fact that she appeared sad. I don't think any of us can know if she was sad or not. But even if this news opens the possibility of making her unhappy, it seems cruel to bring this into her life. What moral purpose does it serve? And he spends the article debating this, uh, but lands here, which is, quote, What ultimately makes this question impossible to answer definitively is a chasm we cannot traverse. As humans, we can only think about a gorilla's experience in human terms. Mm -hmm. Everything we imagine about Coco's worldview involves the imposition of human ideas and values upon a consciousness that is fundamentally alien to our own, unquote. And I think this is as good a segue as any to take us into the other bit of my segment today, which is for all her interactions, signs, pets, chuckles, and tickles, was Coco actually ever really, quote unquote, saying anything? Can I interrupt real quick just to say, have you ever seen the Onion, um, I think it was a video, not an article, saying that scientists had successfully taught a gorilla that it will die someday? <laughs> <laughs> and then just trying like the girl assigning yeah, and like, that so is like, awesome sad scared like <laughs> worried <laughs> different stuff. that is so funny oh my god as far as it t- well there you t- go t- t- <laughs> point of why would you bother to, why would you go out of your way to teach like to tell the gorilla this it's like the, the onion it's covered so it horrible thoroughly. yeah it's like the ultimate <laughs> cruelty um and here you go that scientists is so funny. successfully teach gorilla it will die someday is the, the headline just- <laughs> <laughs> We'll post a link to that too. Anyway, I'm sorry. So, what, did could she actually uh, communicate? I'm, I'm just gonna play devil's advocate and/or sure, just give voice to I think what is a legit debate. I did it. You should too. I will. I will. God damn it. Um, right. So that is to say, and this is what Jake was referring to earlier as well with with uh, Alex was Coco learning situational loops and cues, or was she actually utilizing what we consider language? And so I'm now going to turn to an article very nicely written by, uh, man, it's either Yannicky or Janicky mm-hmm. Lennon in the magazine The Wire. Even as early as 1979, a paper published in the very well-respected journal Science, quote, questioned the achievements of Coco, Patterson, and their colleagues. Herbert Terrace, the primary author and a researcher at Columbia University, had taken on the task of proving the linguist Noam Chomsky wrong. Chomsky felt language was an innate human faculty, and Terrace thought it could be taught to our closest relatives. It was the old nature versus nurture debate. He set up a program of teaching sign language to a chimpanzee, whom he cheekily named Nim Chimsky. Ah, yes. (laughs) I've heard of Nim. (laughs) Within a few years, Nim had learned 125 signs. Terrace analyzed his own data from Nim's proficiency as well as studies of other apes and declared none of them showed any evidence of language. Hmm. They didn't invent words or use them in creative combinations, nor did they string them in grammatical order. They signed me eat or eat me interchangeably to mean (laughs) the same thing. Even when they added more words, they didn't make more sense. Like one sixteen signed string by Nim, quote, Give orange, me give, eat orange, me eat orange, give me eat orange, give me you. 
But like that, um, I feel like, yeah, you don't, similar with Alex, you don't have to expect them to understand grammar to still be able to understand how to concepts. communicate a message. And in that case, while it's goofy to imagine someone saying that out loud in that exact phrasing, you very much get the message that Nim wants they a, fucking eat a fucking orange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. They desperately want that orange. Someone's like, you want this? <laughs> Although I cannot help but think again. He plants a yam. He harvests a yam. <laughs> yeah. A yam. There you have it. I agree. I agree. Taking it just a little further. The apes replied to questions, but they couldn't express their feelings spontaneously. That's because they don't communicate unless absolutely necessary, says Srijata Gupta, a comparative psychologist studying animal communication at the University of York in the UK. Quote, most of their communication is imperative rather than declarative or commentative, she says. I may see a nice flower and point it out to you and share my appreciation. Oh, my God, I'm speaking like a weird robot. I may see a nice flower and... (laughs) (laughs) I may see a nice flower and point it out to you and share my appreciation for it, but non-human primates seem not to be doing this, unquote. As Lennon goes on, she eventually hits right on the aspect in all of this that was bothering me the most, uh, whether we take Coco's communication as language or not, mm-hmm. which is that as Coco's trainer, adopted mom, business manager, and chief caregiver, Patterson wasn't a neutral observer. Right. If other scientists wanted to verify her claims, they had no access to Coco, nor could they scrutinize any data. The only publicly available material is video are video recordings on YouTube, Facebook, and various documentaries. It appears as if a lot of Coco's signs were open to interpretation. Take this example from an unedited transcript of an of an internet chat in nineteen ninety eight with Coco. <laughs> <laughs> Question Do you like to chat with other people? Coco. Fine nipple. <laughs> Patterson. Nipple rhymes with people. She doesn't sign people, per se. She was trying to do a sounds-like. Was Coco really playing with words? Or was Patterson making sense of gibberish? Or did Coco not understand the question at all? Or did Coco think, hey, I'm meeting a new person. I know what I want first. Show me the nipple, then we can talk. (laughs) Uh, What is an independent observer to make of all this? This isn't the only example. Although some of Coco's replies were hits, others were misses and non sequiturs. Quote, most of the conclusions from these studies are interpretive and subjective, says Gupta. Claims of emotional expression are especially controversial since caregivers, thinking their their wards were more human than primate, may imbue primate signs with our values. So basically, our own sort of human read on the situation can get in the way of our ability to interpret what the animal is actually conveying. Mm -hmm. For instance, did Coco remember Robin Williams and mourn his death? This is not far-fetched since chimpanzees seem to get upset when an adult dies. Or was her apparent sorrow an imitation of the sadness in Patterson's voice? This is also a distinct possibility known as the Clever Hans phenomenon. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is the horse from the early 20th century in Germany who was not solving arithmetic but instead responding to his handler's body tension. Instead of forcing Coco to chat in a manner that was alien to her species, we may have learned more by learning her language. There is not a doubt that non-human apes communicate. They just do it differently. So, researchers painstakingly study gestures and grunts of wild primates to understand how and what they communicate with whom. 
The era of teaching words to captive apes and looking for evidence of a language is over. Coco lived her entire life in captivity in the most ungorilla like fashion, in a toy-cluttered trailer, hustling treats from handlers. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Whatever the project's methods and interpretations, none of it takes the shine off Coco. She was a charming, if messed up, gorilla who probably learned more about humans than we did about her. Again, this section was nicely composed by Janaki Lennon, or Yanaki Lennon, or Yanaki Lennon, something J-A-N-A-K-I Lennon for The Wire. So I like her read, and I think, you know, it's very open to interpretation. I personally believe that Coco was absolutely communicating. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, I find the Alex examples much more compelling particularly given that they were in some cases sound sounds like from your side quite spontaneously provided yeah um where it's not as clear at least from the stuff that i read how much coco was conveying beyond prompts sure and i think i mean a big part of both of these stories too is is how difficult it is. you think of it with, with the actual handlers like definitely there was an emotional component where it was very difficult for them to let go i mean that was definitely true for pepperberg as well like she really she had been with alex for like 30 something years right and uh or she was 31 years old so about almost 30 years when he finally died so like she had a long standing connection with this bird so difficult to separate the emotional part and similarly like i love the story so much i have an emotional connection to it too i want it to be true i feel the sure. same way about coco too it's like i would like to for it to be true in response to the idea of like non-human primates not communicating stuff when not prompted that I feel like is like, okay, well, they don't need to. They have ways of communicating with each other and stuff. Totally. And so the only reason they'd ever need to communicate with humans in a human way would be if they need something from the human or are being interacted with. So, like, okay, that I think that I can explain that. Like you right. said with Alex, um, a lot of cool stuff about how he would spontaneously do stuff. And, it was, and there was less room for interpretation from the handler because he was saying out loud words you could understand. Uh, a story I didn't include was about how, like, posthumously they published some stuff about his like math abilities and uh, at one point irene was trying to test a different parrot to learn um like to identify numbers by like she was making clicks like they made two clicks wanting him to say two so mm. click click nothing from the bird so we're gonna click click and then from the next room alex goes four. Oh wow and then, so That's she so goes cool. so she goes click click again and he goes six huh so they realized that he was able to do the math up until i think eight was as high as he could go wow and still understand but uh yeah like un unprompted stuff that was still correct which feels anyway more like a sign of actual communication right which again is not to say that coco was not truly communicating yeah. in her own way um even if prompted or even if most of her communication was coming after prompts like you're saying, it's like, well, I'm not going to like waste my time and energy just spontaneously saying stuff. It's like, oh, you want to know about this or that? Boom. Communication. Yeah. And to the, criti the critics' points in both of these cases of like, oh, they just memorize certain things to use in certain scenarios. It's like, yeah, that... That's language. <laughs> that's <laughs> what language is, ultimately. <laughs> it, if it doesn't have the grammar to it, then sure, they're not learning how we put words together to mean certain things mm -hmm. and we don't expect them to because that's complicated and stuff but if they know certain just like if i move my hands this way if i say these sounds 
a certain thing will happen. That's not really any different from how we use language. It's just a simplified version of it. Right. Exactly. It is cool. These are very helpful topics of discussion because I think wherever they shake out, they're they're very much a Rorschach for all of us as far as how much we ourselves feel like other species have a capacity to kind of like quote unquote achieve quote unquote human, you know, technique skills or abilities, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Which isn't to say that there aren't heaps of animal communication forms, all species essentially plant, animal, what have you have forms of very complex communication that aren't necessarily language in the sense of, you know, gestures or sounds. Actually, most of the world communicates by smells. (laughs) Right. So uh, (laughs) we're the fucking weird ones. Uh (laughs) Um, But it is really cool. And hopefully this, I hope my segment hasn't taken any of the shine off of Coco. It's a really, really cool story. There's more than I even talked about today. Plenty more of uh, charming examples of her communication. I'm definitely going to go look at more stuff about Alex myself. Yeah, I want to find. I didn't get a chance to dig into as many YouTube videos as I intended to. I did. I was glad I got the one I did because it's, it's, it's really fun to hear his voice and to see him doing his thing. And so I'll find another. I think if I can find one, it's like a small like documentary thing, just showing kind of the overall gist of his deal. I think that would be the most fun, and I'll I'll put a link. What's to his that. deal? What's yeah? What's what the fuck is what's he about? <laughs> um. Well, gosh dang! I dare say there's one more thing, but one that I think we need to do, which is get this this here NC AAA device out, mm-hmm. boot her up, turning it on now, run the pander function, which is the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk, to see what our patrons need be. Sweet. So we take these tenderly cord things, plug them into the backs of our skulls. Oh, yeah. There that is. And this allows us to tap with our brains into the dark ether and calculate for each one of our individual patrons on Patreon what uh, weird monstery thingies in the world they personally need to watch out for. Today we're first focusing on Chelsea, Chelsea S. of, of Reno, Reno, Nevada. Nevada. Or I guess Nevada. I always forget that. Nevada. I Oops. I, I do that wrong every time because we're not from out there. Nope. Uh, Chelsea, watch out for Gambo. Gambo. Not Gumbo. Gambo. Gambo, also called Kunthum Belin in the native tongue, is the name given to a carcass of an unidentified large marine animal that was reportedly washed up on Bungalow Beach near Gambia River Delta in the Gambia. Right away, Chelsea, I would stay away from beaches and Gambia, and if you see any kind of carcass, <laughs> already a good move to keep your distance. Yes, do not approach any rotting whales. Although if you do run into someone named Owen Burnham, <laughs> he reportedly discovered Gambo back in 1983. So he may be able to help you. Yeah, he has he has the inside scoop. We call it the dolphin, but it was actually it was pretty big. Uh, <laughs> 15 feet in length. Real big dolphin. Brown on top, white below, skin itself smooth. S- sightings map. Wow, there's a there's actually a pin. Uh, maybe <laughs> we can send this along to you so you know exactly where in the world to not go. Yep, I like the idea of a map of sightings where th- 
happened wow. one time. That is amazing. <laughs> There's the sighting. My goodness. It would be There's much a more map that's been downloaded into our brains uh -huh. that uh, is exact. Oh, there's an artist's rendering. Gambo uh -huh. looks very much like a stretched out Platypus rubber dog. Dolphin. Yeah. Mosasaur. It would be more troubling if there were multiple pins, I guess, in this case. Oh, if, yeah. If the body of this dead whale washed up more than one time in different places. Anyway, watch out for whales. <laughs> and thank you so much for your thank support. You so we much. really appreciate it. Oh, we're getting another name coming oh, into it's our coming in. now. Yeah, it's uh, it. Slanty. Slanty? Slanty of... Slanty of Carlton. Let's try this one more time together. One, two, three. Slanty. Slanty. Of Carlton, UK. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Slanty, do be on the lookout for Miramar, Miramar Toxodont. It's a mystery hoofed mammal of South America. Gosh, another mystery hoofed mammal. Mm -hmm. I know you're familiar with the paleontologist Carlos Amaquino <laughs> and how he uncovered stone tools in late Pliocene strata, which are two million years old, according to this download and he did it all uh, you know he's in Miramar Buenos Aires Argentina between 1912-1914 uh, common knowledge uh, among the things he found he saw to the stone arrow spear pointed embedded in the femur of a toxodont a member of a family of large horse or rhino like hoofed animals that persisted in South America until about 10,000 years ago so I would say don't build a time machine nope do not go to South America. Mm -mm. And whatever you do, avoid any late Pliocene strata. Maybe just stay away from museums in general. You never know. <laughs> uh, even though they died out 10,000 or more years ago, <laughs> their bones might fall on you. It's always possible. And or uh, what's his name there? Carlos. Uh, he's probably pretty old now, but, you know, <laughs> he may be grumpy. And try to hurt you as well. So stay away from those guys. Alternatively, if you absolutely need to go to Buenos Aires or if you need to do paleontology, go armed with a bow and arrow. It seems like those do kill toxodonts. Stone arrows are best. <laughs> yes. And thank um, you so much for Thank you very, us very much. Uh, we really appreciate your support. If you out there in the great beyond are listening and not currently a patron, your name two could be added to the pander function at any of our awesome tiers at any tier as well you will automatically get not just the panda situation but also access to our super fun discord very very cool community of folks who it's just uh you want to join popping that off it is at the entry level you also get outtakes from every single month's worth of episodes curated Woo. outtakes so whatever level you join at you get all three of those things mm. right away and uh, beyond that, you can also get at higher levels stickers and bonus minisodes every single week starting soon. Soon. And we'll get back and do it again. The swing of things. <laughs> and uh, there's also like merch discount. There's just there's good, good stuff. And the goodest of stuffs right now, perhaps, is the opportunity to get a super duper stitious Belgian beer glass, a tulip style glass with our mm. logo on it. Available to the first 100 patrons as of recording this right now, Wednesday, November 3th, 2021. We have 86 patrons. That means the next 14 patrons will automatically get 
one of these glasses. The first 100 of you will get one. Ooh, couldn't be easier. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, you know, 5, 10, 20 years down the line from whenever <laughs> this was recorded. Uh-huh. Fear not, assuming we're still alive uh, and the show's still going. <laughs> if you are a patron for, say you're the 101st patron, which... We can expect to wait about five years for that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> if you are a patron for a year, get ready to drink some beer mm-hmm. out of one of these tulip-shaped glasses. You'll get a glass if you're a patron for a year. That's what I'm saying. You can also, if you don't feel like waiting, you can use the fun Patreon option to do the yearly, uh, like, yearly rate where you get a discount like two months cost off for paying for a full year at once and um and you will automatically immediately get the glass 12 months for the price of 10 plus a glass Mm -hmm. i mean it's pretty much paying for itself right out of the gates truly and uh i actually just found from doing a lot of fucking around with figuring out how to ship these things safely you will have a tracking number (laughs) to go with it too so you'll be able to see exactly where it is the moment i send it out and I'll like I'll message you. Here's your tracking number, and you'll be able to see. Oh, Jake put it in the mail yesterday. Here and it comes. You'll see like oh, that red my. X along the line, the exact <laughs> moment that the guy like drops it and then puts it back <laughs> on the truck, and then you'll know when it turns into a, a fine dust. <laughs> They're made out of sugar glass so that you can smash them on your friend's head super good, <laughs> <laughs> very safely. Yeah. Um, other thing about that too is if they do break, I will send you another one. There you go. But they won't break because he packed them up real careful. Oh, back. Good. Uh, anyway, do it. Thanks. Let's unplug this from our heads. Ah, yeah. uh, feels so good. See you next yeah. week. Goodbye. Bye.